You know, the famous Thomas Edison understood the principle of second chances. When he and his staff were developing the incandescent light bulb, it took hundreds of hours to manufacture a single bulb. One day, after finishing a bulb, he handed it to his young errand boy and asked him to take it up the stairs to the testing room. As the boy turned and started up the stairs, the unthinkable happened. He stumbled and fell, and the bulb shattered into a million pieces on the steps. But instead of rebuking the boy or getting mad at him, Edison reassured him and then turned to his staff and told them to start working on another bulb. When the new bulb was completed several days later, Edison dramatically demonstrated the reality of forgiveness, the reality of second chances in the most powerful ways. He walked over to that very same boy who had just broken that bulb and handed him the new bulb and said, please take this up to the testing room. Imagine how that boy must have felt. He knew he didn't deserve to be trusted again with this responsibility. Yet it was offered to him again, a second chance. Nothing could have restored this boy more clearly, more quickly, more fully. This is where we come today. Our God is the God of second chances. Today we'll see that both for Jonah and second chances and for the city of Nineveh. Has anybody here ever needed a second chance? Has anybody here ever messed up and needed a second opportunity, a third opportunity, a 57th opportunity to make it right? Has anyone in here ever been disobedient to God, even outright rebellious, and yet turned back to God to find a second chance? We saw in chapter 1 that Jonah purposely chose not to do what God wanted him to do. God clearly told him to go to Nineveh. And he got in a boat going in the exact opposite direction. Now, Jonah was a true believer. He was a real follower of God. Yet when God asked him to be obedient, he justified his disobedience and chose to go his own way. Sounds like people I know. Sounds like me. As we talked about a few weeks ago, we've all chosen not to follow God's clear commands. We, we all justify our actions and try to convince ourselves that our way is better than God's way. We think to ourselves that if God only knew what was really going on, he would agree with my choice. When we disobey a clear truth from God's word, we, we usually have a really good reason. We're not just outright rebelling. We, we try to justify our actions. We've thought it through and we justify our disobedience and we deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow our sinful choice was the right thing to do. Jonah did that. Jonah did it. And so do we. But thanks be to God that that's only the beginning of Jonah's story and not the end of it. Right? And thanks be to God that's only the beginning of our story. That's not the end God pursued Jonah, even in the midst of his disobedience. God pursues those he loves. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
How grateful we are for God's love, for a love that will not let us go, but will do what's best for us. God's love pursued Jonah and disciplined him. The Lord hurled this great tempest upon the sea. And then Jonah was thrown into the sea to save the lives of the sailors. And instantaneously, the sea miraculously calms down. Then God appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah in just a nick of time to save his life. In the belly of the great fish, Jonah remembered the Lord and he repents. And God took another direct action on Jonah's behalf and he commanded the fish to vomit Jonah up on dry land. It's a pretty amazing story of God's loving pursuit of a rebellious child to bring him back into obedience. Well, none of us have a story like that. But all of us, we're true believers. We can all look into our lives and see how God's love pursued after us. Even after we've chosen to be disobedient to him. Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through reaping the consequences of our own foolish decisions, through the direct discipline of God in our lives, we have all experienced a divine wake-up call calling us back into obedience to God. We have all dropped the light bulb. Our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our futures lie shattered on the ground from our own choices just like that light bulb. But see, what happens next in life is some of the most important truths about life. See, do you just get the broom and dustpan out, sweep up all the mess, throw it away, never learning, never growing, never changing? Do you just step over the mess, pull yourself up and pretend it never happened, searing your conscience and stuffing reality away? Or do you open up your heart to God? Do you look to Him for forgiveness? For grace, do you find in him the love and second chance that you were looking for? Do you find the strength to actually do what is right in him? What we do with the moments of the difficulties and failures and hardships of our lives often are the very direction of our lives with long-lasting and profound effect. Well, let's look at Jonah Chapter 3. Please turn in your Bibles there with me. To Jonah chapter 3. As we come to these amazing words of our God of second chances. Jonah 3 verses 1 through 3. Says then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it. The message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah 3, 1, perhaps one of the most gracious verses in all of the Bible. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Have you ever thought how powerful that verse is. 
See, God had a message that he wanted to get to Nineveh, and he could have done it in any number of ways. He chose the prophet Jonah to give this message. But Jonah then runs in the opposite direction in disobedience. Now Jonah has repented. He's restored in a right relationship with his Lord. And God still has this message he wants to give to Nineveh. All the options are back open to God. He could have chosen any number of different ways to get his message to Nineveh. But instead, he goes back to Jonah. He goes to the runaway prophet. He goes back to Jonah, the very one who purposely rebelled against his clear command. He goes back to Jonah, who did not deserve a second chance. But out of God's amazing love, he offers Jonah another opportunity to be obedient. You know, when Abraham failed, did God revoke his promises? No, God reached out in forgiving grace. When David, had, when David sinned, did, did God take away his kingship? No, God restored him and gave him a second chance to show that he was a man after God's own heart. When Peter denied Christ, did Jesus give up on him? I'm no longer dealing with you. You're going to deny me. I'm not going to stand with you. No, Jesus specifically calls him to serve him again. Guess what? When we sin, when we turn our back, God doesn't run away from us. God runs towards us. He doesn't reject us. He embraces us. He doesn't say, you're no good no more. No, he restores us. He heals us. He loves us. He shed his grace on us. I want to take a moment this morning and watch this video from the skit guys. Now, in this scene with the skit guys, it portrays this powerful conversation between Jesus and Peter, which shows us the amazing grace of God. Now, it's the skit guys, right? So it's funny. It has a powerful message of God's amazing, forgiving, and restoring grace. Let's watch the video. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus said you, you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net. And I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord. And you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you, yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster cluck, and I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. 
that is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty, and she said that the, there was an angel there, and the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay, he is risen. And so, me and John, we hightailed it down there, and if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is, it is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait. The angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said okay. what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. Powerful video. That last line, what I did on the cross, was meant to take what was unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's about Jesus and his grace. See, perhaps this morning... It's that message of our God being the God of second chances that needs to permeate your soul. Perhaps this morning you need to look full in the wonderful face of Jesus and accept his grace. Realize that Jesus made the unforgivable forgivable. With him and because of him, nothing is unforgivable because it's not about you. It's about all that he has done. It's about his grace. All things, everything we've done is forgivable through the grace and the sacrifice and the love of Jesus. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, right here in the midst of the sermon, we want to just stop and say thank you for this truth. We just want to stop and say thank you that you went to Jonah a second time, that you come to us a second time, over and over, what seems like in our lives is so big and can be, we can feel like it's unforgivable. But it's not. And there you are, offering your love and your forgiveness and your grace. We just want to thank you for that. How many times you've renewed us. And maybe now today, for some sitting here in this prayer from their heart right now, to be renewed, to get that second chance. 
Jesus' name. Amen. Next, we're going to see God's amazing grace for those who wanted nothing to do with God. If you've got your Bibles open again, let's look there at Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 4, about the Ninevites. Jonah 3, 4 says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he rose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and did not do it. Our God of second chances. A few people have deserved God's judgment more than these wicked Ninevites. And God was planning on giving them the justice that they deserved. He could have done it without any warning. He could have just pronounced his judgment and done it. But he didn't. He sent Jonah with a message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In Hebrew, that message is just five words long. Why did Ed come with this message that in 40 days it'll be overthrown? Why didn't he give him 40 days advance? Why didn't he just execute his divine judgment? Because our God is a God of grace. He was giving them an opportunity to respond to his message. The very message that God had given to Jonah implies a possibility that since the people have time, God is waiting to see their response. And if they choose to repent, then God would choose to forgive. Jonah knew that this was God's message, and this is specifically why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. If you look over in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, and Jonah's response to God For his grace to the Ninevites, Jonah says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So how did the people respond? They could have responded and hardened their hearts. They could have rejected the message and the messenger They could have rallied their armors in some bold attempt to stave off any armies or anybody that was coming to throw off their city. They could have tried to rely on their false gods to come to their defense. They could have made so many wrong choices in response to God's message. But they didn't. Something rang powerfully true about this message from God. And when they heard it, they believed God was telling them the truth. They believed That what God said was really going to happen. You see, no matter how hard the truth is, no matter how boldly or even how insensitively it might be presented at times, it is the truth. And the truth of God's word is powerful. One of the reasons the Ninevites responded and believed God 
was that they were in a time of considerable weakness as a state, as a nation. Their country was under serious threat by the hill tribes people and people from the north. There was a sense of impending doom that had already permeated the city, even before Jonah had come. God obviously knew what was going on and it actually set the scene for the people of Nineveh to receive his message and to respond to his message. Don't we all know that some of the most receptive times of our lives to hear God is when we are in the midst of a life crisis. When difficult times and challenging times are surrounding us is often when we're most receptive to hear the word of the Lord. The fact is, is that God uses these challenges. God uses the difficulties of our lives. God uses them as opportunities to show us his grace and to bring us closer to him. The truth of God's message convicts their hearts and scares the people and they fast and they put on sackcloth. Fasting means that they're seeking God's mercy and sackcloth is a sign of repentance. When the message of God reaches the king through the response of the people, even the king humbles himself in sackcloth and ashes. It's interesting to note that the people of Nineveh responded to Jonah's message first, and then the king makes his decree. This is purposely telling us that there's a genuineness to many of the people's repentance. They didn't just fast or put in sackcloth because the king ordered them to do it. They did it out of their own response. The king, in his response, then issued that broad and sweeping proclamation about everyone and every beast, uh, putting on sackcloth and ashes, repenting and turning. The people had already responded to God's message from Jonah, and now the king doubles down, decrees this massive showing of humility and repentance. The king decrees that all should fast and be covered in sackcloth. He calls out for all humility, for all the people, even the very animals, before the power of God. But that's not all he does. The king also calls for everyone to turn from his evil ways, to turn from their violence. This is more than just humility of actions before a powerful sovereign. There is repentance. Repentance is turning away from evil. They wanted to show that their lives were different. That they were turning away from the very evil that God was coming to judge them for. Now, what level was the sincerity of their repentance? Were they forsaking all of their gods and adopting the God of the Hebrews as their one true only God? Were they saying that they wanted to be, you know, part of a relationship with the God of the Hebrews and they wanted to now start following all of his laws and all of his commands? Were they committing themselves 24-7 for their futures to God? Or were they just responding out of fear and respect for the power of God? Now, we obviously can't know that for sure because we don't know their hearts. We don't have a lot of information exactly what happened after uh, Jonah's time there. But it seems like for two reasons that perhaps for the majority of the people, the repentance was not long-lasting or life-changing. One reason we say this is history records that in just about 50 years after this, the nation of Assyria would then arise again to great dominance and bring their horrible reign of terror, conquering foreign lands, which would eventually even include conquering 
the northern kingdom of Israel, the very place that Jonah was from. We also get a clue about their not lasting uh, repentance or life change from the way the word God is used to describe Jonah's relationship with God and the Ninevites' relationship with God. See, the covenant-keeping personal name of God, Yahweh, is used to describe Jonah's relationship with God. Jonah 3.1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Lord is the word Yahweh. It's, it's again used in Jonah 4.2, that personal covenant-keeping name, Yahweh, is used. However, the almighty creator name, the powerful name of God, Elohim, is used to describe the Ninevites' relationship with God. Jonah 3, 5, it says, The people of Nineveh believed Elohim, believed God. Like the sailors in chapter 1 who believed God, the Ninevites in chapter 3 are thoroughly impressed with the mighty power of God and respond with profound respect and fear. They bow to the sovereign power of God, but the majority never put their active trust in following up their repentance with a true turning to obey God's commands. The fear of God's power and responding in humility is not the same thing as calling upon God for your salvation and pledging to follow Him with your whole life. This is a very important application point this morning. Because we can do the same thing. We can think that, that we have done all that we need to do because there was a moment in our past when we vocalized repentance to God. But repentance without a changed life, repentance without new priorities, repentance without following up your life in obedience to God is not the type of repentance that leads to a relationship with God and future eternity with God. Just believing that God is real and that he's powerful is not enough. Just responding out of fear for you know, eternity in hell so you can stamp some kind of ticket to get your place in heaven is not enough. Salvation is not just some kind of transaction. Salvation is a transformation. Salvation is not just a transaction, not just a sign here on the bottom line of your eternal life insurance, and now you're in. No, salvation is a transformation. It's about exchanging a life of sin and selfishness for the life of Christ and his sinlessness. It's about it's about glorifying God with our lives. It's about accepting Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. It's about being born again to a new life. It's about becoming a new creation where the old is gone and the new has come. It's about a complete, radical shift in who you are and how you live. Folks, this is important. If you believe you're a Christian, but there's been no change in your life, if you call yourself a believer, but there's little to no difference in your priorities and in your actions of your life than every non-believer that you know, then you need to evaluate. You need to call out to God. You need to call out to God and ask Him to confirm with you that you are a child of God and to pledge your life to follow Him as your Lord and Savior. 
Romans 10.9 says that salvation comes when we believe in the substitutionary death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. And that we confess with our mouth out of the response of belief that Jesus is our Lord. What does that mean? That means we're confessing that Jesus is the ruler of our lives. That means we are saying to Jesus, you get to call the shots of my life. 24-7. Salvation is a transformation process. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Call out to God. Listen to the Spirit. Are you a child of God? Salvation is not just some transaction that happened sometime in the past. It is an event that happened in the past that transforms our lives. Have you been? Are you being transformed? There's another important truth about our God pictured for us and God's grace for the Ninevites. Our God is not just kind to his children. It's beautiful. He doesn't just give second chances to those who are in his family. His love and his grace is not restricted only to his followers. What an awesome God we serve. What a gracious God of active compassion. Our God of grace giving us what we don't deserve. Our God is a God of steadfast love and abounding grace. He's a God of mercy, not giving us what we do deserve. His amazing attributes benefit both the follower of God and the person who is far away from God. God gave the Ninevites an opportunity to respond with humility and repentance, and they did. So God responded consistent with his character and showed them grace and mercy. But note this. The point of the repentance of the Ninevites isn't their repentance. The point of the repentance of the Ninevites is about God's grace. The point of the passage is about the extravagant love and grace given to people who do not deserve it. God is not a God who delights in bringing destruction, but God delights in offering grace and forgiveness to those who would turn to him. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Romans 2.4 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. If such a wonderful Lord, so kind and gracious. And his, kind, his kindness, His graciousness, His mercy has a point to lead us to repentance. See, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to give us life, real life, to the fullest. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus came to save us. Please take a moment and open your Bibles again to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 16 and following. John three sixteen, perhaps the most famous verse today of our scriptures. But we're going to read through 19. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 3.16, this great capsule of the gospel. God, through his ever-abounding love for us, sends us Jesus to live a sinless life, to die a sacrificial death, to raise again in power and in victory and in glory so that all who believe in him, all who put their trust in him, will never perish but will have everlasting, eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the foundation of the very existence of our lives. But the following verses add great depth to verse 16. They teach us that God sent Jesus to this world not to condemn the world, but to save it. You see, God is not in the business of condemnation, but in the business of salvation. Did you hear that? God is not in the business of condemnation. He's in the business of salvation. Because in reality, Jesus doesn't condemn us. Who condemns us? We condemn ourselves. Jesus has come to rescue us from our own condemnation of ourselves. We stand condemned already. We have by nature and by choice loved darkness rather than light. That's the judgment. We have by nature and by choice our sinners We stand condemned already because we have not believed on Jesus, but have actively and purposely hold on to our pride and will not bow down to Jesus. Folks, this is the reality of all people everywhere, every single human on planet Earth. This is God's truth. The question remains for us today, where do you stand? Do you stand in your own condemnation? Do you stand outside of Jesus on your own, in your own sin and selfishness, loving darkness rather than the light? Or have you come to Jesus and believed on him? Have you come to Jesus accepting Jesus' love, turned to him in repentance, gave your life to him because he gave his life for you? See, today is a day of salvation. Do you stand in your own condemnation or do you stand in the loving Embrace the forgiving hug of Jesus Christ. Well, perhaps you're a believer here today, and all around your feet are the shards of the consequences of your life. Our lives and hopes and dreams, futures shattered on the ground by our own choices. Perhaps you might be thinking here this morning, where is God? What is He doing? Well, let me tell you, with the clarity of the Scripture, He loves you. He's gracious to you. He's merciful for you. He's looking for you to turn to Him, to repent, to come to Him. He's offering you a second chance because our God is the God of second chances. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I believe this. I believe this with all of my heart that you are the God of second chances. For me and my life, for my family, 
for my church family, for this community in this world. You are the God of second chances. You are the God over and over again reaching out in grace and mercy and love, steadfast and abounding, offering yourself to rescue us from our own condemnation. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that that might not know you, that might have been, been still standing out in their own condemnation. Lord, this morning, in this prayer right now, help them turn to you. Help them just to pray a simple prayer. You know, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, you, you died for me. You died for my sins. And I repent. I, I ask you for forgiveness. I, I believe that you died and rose again. And I want to live my life for you. I want to have you as the priority of my life. Come, make all things new. Lord, maybe one here this morning prayed a prayer like that. Lord, for the believers here that might be looking around at the consequences of their lives and wondering, what have they done? And, What's going on and where you are, Lord, right now through your Holy Spirit, comfort them as you break their heart so that you can discipline them and turn them back to you so though they might wander, they would turn and in one step find the embrace of Jesus Christ in their heart and life and they would know repentance and change. They would turn to you this morning. They would be praying to you right now. Lord, we came here this morning because of you. We came here to meet with you, to interact with your word, and to worship you. Lord, I pray if someone here made decisions and they want to talk about it more, give them the encouragement, give them the strength to seek me out or a friend that's sitting next to them or or Pastor Rob, or one of the deacons, to take that step of boldness, that next step, to really solidify what you're doing in their hearts and lives right now. We love you, and we thank you so much that you're the God of second chances. In Jesus' name, amen.